Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're going to read there beginning at verse 2. It's on page 981, if you're using a church Bible. We're reading from verse 2 through to the end of verse 16. And as you're turning there, let me uh, first of all thank my long-standing friend Andy Longway for his welcome. I often think that um, really I should say I will come to the congregation you serve, but you will preach and not I. But whenever you try to do that, the deal is broken, and apparently you only get to come if you're prepared to labor in the Word among the congregation. And to tell the truth, I was secretly hoping. You're very uncertain these days about dress codes in churches. I was secretly hoping that Andy would turn up in an open neck shirt. But instead, he, he turned up wearing exactly the same tie I'm wearing. And I was tempted to change it lest any, of the, any member of the congregation who has this misconstrued view of Scotsman thought they must have both bought that tie in the same sale. <laughs> and I'm sure he didn't, but they, I have to confess, I did buy it in the sale. Um, but at least I'm wearing the uniform. And so it's a, great, it's a great pleasure to be with you. I've known of this church building for many years because of things that are actually associated with its uh, long past history. So it's very interesting to be inside it and see the way it's decorated. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs, says the Apostle Paul. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, the title for the sermon is a narrative of of a surprising conversion. And if you come from the United States of America or read literature from the past periods of awakening, both in the United Kingdom and in what was then the colonies, you're probably familiar with the fact that that is the title of one of Jonathan Edwards' most famous books. Um, It's safe to say here, it raises eyebrows, at least in my experience when I've said this in the past in the United States, that Jonathan Edwards was a very great British theologian. And if you know his dates, you realize that he lived before those troubles that were once experienced, and he actually thought of himself as British. And for those of you who may not know his name, he was a famous preacher and theologian in the days usually described as the first great awakening. And this little book that he wrote is a a series of descriptions of some of the remarkable conversions that took place with which he was personally familiar, a narrative of surprising conversions. And the history of the Christian church is littered with narratives of surprising conversions. Augustine was wholly surprised by his own conversion. Martin Luther was surprised and had a very surprising conversion. You move a little further on, John Bunyan, who's buried somewhere not too far from here, my London geography is weak, but he's buried in Bunhill Fields, had an amazingly and surprising conversion. John Wesley and his brother Charles, very surprising conversions because they were already clergymen in the Church of England. And for those of you who are genetically members of the Free Church of Scotland, there have been few more surprising conversions in Scotland than the conversion of Thomas Chalmers, a man who for years as a minister believed he was a Christian until he saw real Christianity in members of his congregation in Kilmany. But the most surprising conversion in history is surely what we usually refer to as the Damascus Road conversion. It's become an expression 
we say they had a Damascus Road conversion. I didn't have a Damascus Road conversion. And one of the reasons I want to look at this section of Philippians is because the Apostle Paul himself may not have had a Damascus Road conversion. We tend to read the uh, Acts of the Apostles where the story of his conversion is told three different times, more or less with the same details. And we think that is all that the New Testament has to say about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. One moment, suddenly, Christ strikes him down. And we give very little attention, I think, to the clues that we find in Paul's own letters, which help us to understand there was a lot more to it than an instantaneous experience. And even those of us who may have had sudden and dramatic conversions are usually able to look back and see there was more to it than just that moment. There were situations and circumstances and people and events that surrounded it. And so I think we could put it this way. In the Acts of the Apostles, where the story of Saul's conversion is told, in a way, it's like, it's like looking at his conversion through a telescope. But then when we turn to his letters, and perhaps this is the most notable place, he, he puts his own conversion under the microscope. And when he puts his conversion under the microscope, we see he understood there was a lot more going on in his life than just a sudden flash of light that blinded him and a voice that spoke to him. If anything, that was the end of the beginning and the beginning of a life that would extend in Christ right to the very end. And this chapter in Philippians chapter 3 is one of the places where he tells us what was involved in his own conversion. In as he says in verses 8 and 9, coming to know Christ and gaining Christ and be found in Christ. And these are, these are conversion words, aren't they? Coming to know Christ. You ask somebody, when were they converted? They might say, I came to know Christ then. Or if they're a little more sophisticated, as doubtless some of our fellowship are, we, we like to just use those those uh, nuanced words, I was found in Christ at this point. And that's what he's speaking about here. And clearly, he has a pretty obvious reason for doing so. He speaks about his own conversion experience and all of its implications because he understands that in God's providence, he has been peculiarly, unusually shaped by God by the way God brought him to himself to deal with false teaching that has been arising in the various churches that have been influenced by his ministry. If you, if you read the literature on the letters of Paul, these people are usually referred to as the Judaizers, um, people who, having been brought up in the Jewish faith with its overwhelming insistence on the the special demarcation signals in their lives 
like the food laws or the calendar laws or especially circumcision for the men. And so enamored of this, the, the, the Jewishness of the Christian faith that they began to insist that if you really wanted to belong to the continuity of God's people, then it wasn't enough to come to faith in Jesus Christ, acknowledge His Lordship, and live for His glory. If you wanted to be the real deal, you also needed to be circumcised. And this is why Paul uses very strong language here, because he sees this as so destructive of the gospel. And at the same time, I think he realizes that God had so shaped his own life, his own experience, the way he came to Christ, from exactly that kind of context, that he is precisely the man for the hour, and that he has been equipped by God in very special ways. Um, God has even picked up into his purposes and is using for his glory Saul of Tarsus's missteps and is now equipping him to minister to these people to defend the Philippians, to defend the gospel, and to exalt Jesus Christ as the alone Savior and the alone Lord of his people. And as I say, one of the things he does then is to put his own conversion narrative from the Acts of the Apostles, not viewing it through a telescope, but viewing it through a microscope, to take us almost, as it were, step by step through the way in which the Lord did bring him to himself and produce the glorious fruits in his life that his conversion obviously did. And I want to try and think about this step by step, and I see the clock on the wall is already at half past one, so I'll try and be as quick as I possibly can. First of all, I want to invite you to think about what he says about what he was outside of Christ, what he was outside of Christ. You see the point he's making? He's saying these people, they, they claim certain things. None of them is superior to what I was able to claim. None of them is superior. And so he speaks about his own pedigree, doesn't he? He says, I look back on my own life, what do I see? He sees that he was a, a true Jew, that he, was, he belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. That is, I imagine he was called Saul because he belonged to the tribe of Benjamin from which tribe Israel's first king came. And not only is there that pedigree, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was brought up as a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is to say, he was like somebody, if I can put it in free church terms, who was brought up in the Western Isles, and they never spoke anything but Gallic at home. In his house, in Tarsus, they, although he had a command of the Greek language that he learned at home, it was always Hebrew, 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 Hebrew. And not only so, but when it, when it came to the, the hour of spiritual decision, 
He added to his pedigree a very particular decision. But while his father apparently had been a Pharisee, he was going to be a Pharisee too. I don't know that we always understand there were denominations in Judaism, just as there are denominations, too many of them, in Presbyterianism. And uh, those of you are from Scotland, you know you can go along from the left wing to the right wing, from the less conservative to the more conservative to the very conservative to the very, very conservative. And that was where Saul of Tarsus went. You remember how he refers to his commitment to be a Pharisee, the strictest denomination or sect in our religion. And you can see the point that he's making. The point he's making all along is that he has a pedigree and a performance that simply can't be matched by any of his contemporaries. And yet he came to realize that none of that was sufficient for his salvation. And now that he has been saved by Jesus Christ, none of that can contribute to, not add to, either his justification, his sanctification, or his glorification. And the point he's making is that all of these things were true of me when I was outside of Christ. These are the things that matter when you're outside of Christ that you are, as people have sometimes told me, a seventh-generation Presbyterian elder. And he's saying, look, I'm a ninth-generation Presbyterian elder, and it contributed absolutely nothing whatsoever to my salvation. And he caps it all off by what I think is a very significant statement as to zeal persecuting the church. As to zeal persecuting the church. So all of these false teachers, these Judaizers, they can tick some of these boxes. They cannot put three ticks beside them the way I can. And if you want to talk about real zeal, real opposition to Jesus Christ, I persecuted the church. And I think we need to understand that when Paul says that he is the chief of sinners, he's not trying to teach us to think about ourselves that way. We may well do. But we shouldn't use that statement to say, well, Paul starts off saying he's a sinner. He ends up saying like he's the least of the apostles. And then he says he's the greatest of sinners. He really did believe objectively, historically, he was the chief of sinners. Because certainly, as the narrative of the Acts of the Apostles indicates, he was the one man, the one man who seemed to believe he had the capability to destroy the Christian church at its roots. So he says, none of these Judaizers can match either my pedigree, my performance, or the amount of persecution in which I'm engaged and it's that persecution, the fact that he was so zealous in persecution, that I think is the, the segue in the life of Saul of Tarsus that eventually brings him to Jesus Christ. 
So I want us to think not only about what he was outside of Christ, but try and stand back from this to, to see if we can work out what was involved then in his experience that brought him to Christ. How did he come to Christ? I think there is more to it than the Damascus Road. That's, that's what I'm saying. And I'm saying this emphasis on persecution is a key. Now, why do I say that? So if we, I mean, if we polled a, a group of, of Christians and said, why did, why did Saul of Tarsus persecute the church? My guess is that there would be a percentage of answers that would say, because he was a Pharisee. No. Why do I say that? Well, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. No evidence he persecuted the church. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee, almost certainly. But most significantly, Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus's, not easy to say in a hot Sunday, Saul of Tarsus's professor of theology was a Pharisee. His name was Gamaliel. And you remember when the question was arising in the Jewish ruling council, should we persecute these Christians? Gamaliel, the great theologian, the teacher of Saul of Tarsus. And good students usually listen to what their teachers say. He puts up his hand and he says, you remember? He says, if this is of God, it's going to last. If it's not of God, it's going to perish we do not need to do anything, leave it to God. Now, whether you think that was a good idea or a bad idea, what is crystal clear is that probably the man whom Saul of Tarsus respected most, he mentions it later on in his defense in Jerusalem. I studied in the, under Gamaliel in this city. Gamaliel was not for persecuting Christians. So why did Saul of Tarsus do it? You may work in a situation, study in a situation, live in a neighborhood, but there actually are some people who persecute you. But most people don't. Why is it that some people do and most people don't? They may not like your Christian faith, but they're not throwing bricks through your window or graffiti on your walls. They're not constantly angry with you. There's usually a reason, isn't there? There's something going on. And I'm pretty sure we can trace what was going on in the heart of Saul of Tarsus, that he is this lone ranger persecutor. Yes, there is persecution, but he is the lone ranger leader of the charge. Why is he doing that? Well, he gives us some clues. The first is in Galatians chapter 1. When he reflects on his early life, he says, you know, the truth of the matter was that in religious orthodoxy and zeal, I ran ahead, well, he says, of most of my contemporaries. I think he really means all my contemporaries. He seems to have been a man determined to be numero uno in terms of religious commitment. And then something very interesting happens. Um, 
If you read through the Acts of the Apostles, Luke, the author of Acts, I think gives us some clues as to, as to what happened. It, point, it points out that he was different from Gamaliel in this, this zeal to persecute. And then I wonder if you've noticed that Saul of Tarsus appears in the narrative of the Acts of the Apostles just at the end of the narrative about Stephen, the first martyr. And when he appears, it's clear that this is not his first appearance. He's been there all along. And how has he been there all along? He's been there all along because, if you, again, if you read through the Acts of the Apostles, you'll notice that when Stephen comes on the scene, he is presented in a very Christ-like way. He's full of faith. He's full of the Spirit. He, he handles God's Word truly. He actually does powerful works. And when he dies, what Luke narrates is that he died with words on his lips similar to the words that were on the lips of the Lord Jesus when he was crucified. And he's giving us little hints about the character of this man's life, the Christ-likeness of this man's life. And then he adds this strange little detail just as the controversy begins. He tells us the particular synagogue where the controversy arose. And it's one of those verses in the New Testament that you slide over, and if you stop and think about it, you think, why, why is he giving us all these details? Not really germane to the story, when in fact they're essential to the story. Because the synagogue group, in which was the epicenter of the persecution, the argument with Stephen. None of them could beat Stephen in argument from the Scripture, included those who came from Cilicia, which was where Tarsus was. There may be somebody in the congregation who's come from Scotland to London, and your dad said to you, when, when you go to London, make sure you go to London City Free Church of Scotland. Um, I've had many students from many different parts of the world, most of them, if they have come, have been told, this is where you go, these are our people, they'll look after you, they'll take care of you. And it seems to me that what Luke is, he's just giving us a little clue. And those things that seem irrelevant in New Testament narrative are often really essential to what's going on in the story. That when little Saul of Tarsus is sent off to study under Professor Gamaliel in Jerusalem, Saul's dad says, when you go, some of our cousins are in this synagogue. This is where people from Tarsus go. And Luke makes clear there wasn't a single person in that synagogue group was able to match the power and the grace of Stephen's life and ministry. And my friends, if you wanted to be numero uno and for the first time in your life met somebody who was everything you aspired to be, something is bound to happen. And what happened? Well, excuse me dotting around the New Testament, but 
I think it's very interesting that when Paul speaks about his conversion in Romans chapter 7, he puts it this way, I was alive apart from the law once. Now, Paul lived the whole of his life under the law. He says, but then the law came. That is to say, something of the power of the law broke into his life. Maybe you've had this experience. I, um, I grew up knowing I wasn't perfect, but I never thought about myself as a sinner. And then the Word of God came. And Saul of Tarsus uh, had a similar experience. He says, the law came, sin revived, and I died spiritually. I knew I was dead. But the interesting thing is he actually specifies the commandment that got him that got him. And you can imagine this in different people's lives. If there's an adulterer sitting in the congregation, and God's commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is expounded and applied by the Holy Spirit, that's the commandment that's going to awaken him to his sense of sinfulness or her to her sense of sinfulness. What was the commandment that got Saul of Tarsus? You shall not covet. Isn't that interesting? You shall not covet. And isn't that interesting in context of Stephen, who was the only one apparently of Saul's generation who had anything that Saul of Tarsus might covet? He was everything Saul of Tarsus aspired to be by his efforts to be obedient to the law, but had disastrously failed, and now it was being exposed in his heart. And friends, when that happens, you're really left with one of two alternatives. You either join them or you beat them, don't you? You either go and you say, Stephen, how is it that I've done all this and I know I do not have what you have? Or you determine to destroy whatever it is that has begun to prompt these deep awakening concerns in your own conscience. And then as you and your zeal go to persecute the church with all this going on under the surface, well, it's the end of the beginning, isn't it? When light strikes you blind and a voice comes from heaven and says, I am Jesus. And in persecuting Stephen, you have been persecuting me, and you know it now. Who are you, Lord? Well, he's the one that, in a sense, had come near to Saul of Tarsus in this young man, Stephen. So this is what he was outside of Christ. That's a kind of segue Secondly, to think about the way he came to Christ and why he speaks about being found in Christ and coming to know Christ. And that leads me to underscore the effect of this in Saul's life. And it comes in two ways. It comes, first of all, in a new ambition in his life. What does he want now? He wants, first of all, to know Christ not just to preach Christ, but to know Christ. 
to be able to say, as he said earlier on in the letter, to me to live is Christ. That's everything. To die is gain. He wants to give himself in devotion to Christ. Usually when, when Paul calls Jesus kurios, Lord, he is not saying, Jesus is my Lord, like the t-shirts, Jesus is my Lord. He's saying Jesus is Lord. Whether he's my Lord or not, he is Lord. It's the term that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the divine name Yahweh. But the interesting thing about what he says here, when he speaks about wanting to know and trust and love Jesus Christ as my Lord, he is actually speaking about a new devotion to him. To think that the one he was persecuting is now the Lord to whom he's devoted. That's, that's what happens when we come to faith in Christ, isn't it? I mean, it's not something we work up. It's something that comes down. It comes down through faith in Christ. And now we want to know him. We want to serve him. We want to be devoted to him. And also you'll notice he says in verses 8 to 10, if I can summarize, he wants to become like him no matter what that means. If it means sharing in his sufferings, he wants to share his sufferings and even become like him in his death. You know, I've always pondered why is it that if all that I'm saying is true, the Apostle Paul never once breathes the name of Stephen. Not once. And I think the reason is if I had been in his shoes, I wouldn't have been able to breathe his name either without breaking out in tears, being overcome, being unable to continue. Because what he's describing here about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, being conformed to his death in order to share in his resurrection, it's a description of what he saw in Stephen. And now it's not only that he wants what Stephen had, it's that he has what Stephen had. And it's written all over his ministry, isn't it? In a way, in a way, Stephen was such a complete waste of a life. Except we could say, apart from the death of Jesus Christ, as far as we know, this is the most fruitful death that any Christian has ever died. And so... Paul's not speaking here about some grand missionary work that he's doing. He saw all of this in a man who we have no reason to believe ever actually, by his preaching, won anybody to faith in Jesus Christ, except, in a sense, Saul of Tarsus. That's a radical transformation in his life. But then that radical transformation produces some, I said, putting his conversion under the microscope. If you, if you look at what he says under the microscope, this, this transformation is really, is really very wonderful. For example, in verses 7 and 8, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. And he keeps using that word, loss. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss 
of all things. Perhaps he was disinherited. I said to somebody as we were walking through London I wonder, yesterday evening, I said, I wonder how much London is worth. You think of these buildings? And they're priceless. You add all that, and then you take the great cities of the world and add that, the value, the, the, the value-added tax that we have created in this world, mind-bending. But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And Paul was in a position of saying, you can have it all as long as you give me Jesus. Because he's, he's, he's not saying this world is a terrible place. I wish God had never created it. But he's saying by comparison with gaining Jesus Christ, gaining everything else in the world. Actually, the word he uses, a word scubalon, scubala. My, my Greek lexicon, when I was a young student, I remember actually looking it up to see the semantic range of the word. Because we were students, we used language like that. And I remember reading my very distinguished Greek linguist who was an English gentleman finishing the explanation of scubalon, usually translated dung, usually translated dung. And that's true, isn't it? When Christ has become the peril of great price, we are willing to sell everything for him. So, we might say he, he's learned a new spiritual accountancy. But there's something else here I think is really, is really pretty interesting. He goes on to say in verses 12 through 14, you know, I'm not there yet. I've got hold of this, but I know there is, there is more of this that I've got hold of. I've got Christ. I'm found in Christ. But I want to know him better. I think the easiest way, since we're, we're a congregation of half elderly and half young, um, I wonder if you know anyone who's fallen in love recently. I can only view this from the male point of view and discovering you want to spend so much time with her because she satisfies you and in her you discover yourself, you discover your destiny, and you don't say to her, is it all right if we can meet for an hour in two weeks' time again? No, you are utterly satisfied, except she leaves with you this note of dissatisfaction until you can have more. And that's what knowing Christ is like for the Apostle Paul, isn't it? And for us. He is so satisfying to us. And yet we know that there is there's more of him to know, more of him to see, more of his work to be done. And we have this, this wonderful spiritual Christian, almost paradoxical combination of experience in which we are both satisfied and not wholly satisfied, because Christ means so much to us. And then I think that perhaps, just speaking personally, has been such a help to me in the midst of this, you'll notice 
that when Paul says he presses on towards the goal, he says it in the context of saying this, I do not consider that I've yet made all this my own, but one thing I do, one thing I do. Now, if you look back to Philippians chapter 1, you'll see that Timothy was in the room. Young Timothy, 35-year-old Timothy, he was in the room. He may even have been the, the amanuensis writing it down. And I know, if, I think if I'd been with Timothy when Paul said, Timothy, okay, just take this down, this one thing I do, nervously, yes, I might have gone, <clears throat> and when he turned around and stared at me with that apostolic stare, I would have muscled up the courage to say, do you really want to say that? One thing I do. I mean, think of the years we've been together. I've never seen you do only one thing. You're always sending off these letters. You're praying. You're running around the country. You're being beaten down. You're being persecuted. You're spending hours in Ephesus every single day teaching the Word. Sometimes you're making tents. I've never been with you a single day in your life when you've not been doing a hundred different things. And I think that Paul would probably have said to him, Timothy, you've got it the wrong way around, haven't you? I'm not doing a hundred different things. I'm doing one thing in a hundred different ways. And you know, I think especially, especially when you're younger and you're finding your way in the Christian life and finding your way in the world and there are a hundred voices and a hundred things to do and a hundred possibilities, when you see that this is what is involved in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, then the simplification, the focus the drive in your life is entirely changed. And you begin to stand out among your peers and contemporaries as somebody whose life has been stabilized on one thing or more accurately on one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you find in him this satisfaction that, yes, has just a touch of dissatisfaction that leads you on to even more satisfaction. And I think it's so interesting here in verse 15 that Paul says this, let those of us who are mature think this way. I don't know what percentage of Christians assume they're mature, but this is, these are the marks of real maturity that this is the way you think. So this is, when you put it under the microscope, a narrative of a very surprising conversion. And I'd bet my tie, and Andy's tie as well, that it's because of this conversion that some of us in the room have had our conversion, because it's through something Paul said, something we have heard preached, something we have read here, that we too have been brought from darkness to light. And if that's not yet true of you, then you come to Christ 
And to be honest, if I can use a television illustration, often the Christian church, the Christian life, the kingdom of God can look a little like Doctor Who's TARDIS, not much from the outside. But as soon as you're in the door, you belong to a world that stretches through history into eternity. And it's massive in its blessings inside. So make sure you knock on the door and come in. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Thank you for the many different ways in which you instruct us through it. And the ways in which you, you come to us, some of us who love poetry so much, who have been so helped by the way in which you speak through words in poetic form, and some of us love history, and you've spoken to us through historical narrative, and some of us love logic and thinking things through, and you, you lead us from step to step through the message of the gospel and the nature of the Christian life. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who takes your word and in the midst of all that we do not remember and even some things that we do not yet understand, he comes to us, each of us individually, and as it were, whispers to us, and this is for you today. And so we pray in whatever way out of this mass of words of the exposition of this marvelous passage, in whatever way you have found access to our minds, our spirits, our consciences, our hearts, our affections, you would write this word on our hearts and strengthen us and bless us through it. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.